from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, we hear why a lawsuit that sought to halt over 50 clemency pleas for death row inmates came to a sudden end after prosecutors reached a settlement with the state's pardon board. Plus, while the Gulf South has some of the worst rates in the country for maternal health and mortality, Women's Hospital in Baton Rouge is set to open a new maternal mental health unit. But first, across the region, parent organizations have been leading efforts to ban books they believe are inappropriate for children and teens. But libraries and bookstores are pushing back as they celebrate Banned Books Week. From the Gulf States newsroom, Drew Hawkins and Maya Miller report. The bandwagon has officially arrived at Baldwin & Co., a black-owned bookstore in the Treme in New Orleans, and the crowd is pumped. More than 200 third and fifth graders from schools across the city are here for the Unbanned Book Festival. The event is part of National Banned Books Week and includes readings from authors like Ani DeFranco. But the real scene stealer here is the bandwagon. Is this an ice cream truck for banned books? It's an ice cream truck for banned books. Carly Gorga is with Penguin Random House, the publisher partner with literacy organizations for a banned books road trip across the South. There's a menu of 12 books to choose from. Which ones do you seem to be most popular based on the previous stops? I Am Jazz and The Bluest Eye have been the most popular, which is interesting. Sort of different ends of the spectrum. That picture book about a child transitioning and Toni Morrison's first novel are some of the most frequently challenged books in the U.S. Book bans have been on the rise in recent years, especially in schools. PEN America reported that more than 3,300 books were banned during the last school year. But by the bandwagon in New Orleans, people are lined up around the block to get copies. Kids like Ryan Vitry, who's here with his dad. He actually skipped school to be here, but don't tell anybody. Ryan is getting a copy of Pride, a picture book about the history of the Pride flag. Um, I have three moms, so that's important to me. I think that everybody should be able to read them. In Louisiana, just challenging a book can get it pulled from library shelves. And the leading candidate for governor in the state has set up a tip line to report librarians and teachers who connect children with books that are quote-unquote inappropriate. Yeah, and here in Mississippi, there's a state law that requires all content in libraries to be checked to make sure it falls in line with certain standards. So to avoid fines and possibly jail time, libraries are putting age limits on things like ebooks and audiobooks because there's no way to vet them all. And Maya, you went to an event for Banned Books Week in Mississippi. What was that like? Well, Drew, I went to a library at the Mississippi University for Women in Columbus, and I hung out with a couple of librarians. Okay, so not so much kids running around yelling, more like some shushing happening. (laughs) Um, Not quite, but we were there for an ACLU meeting and a panel on the state of banned books. In particular, in the Deep South, a lot of the books that are being targeted are centered on themes of race and racism, sex or violence. But we've also seen this real focus on LGBTQ plus themes, and that really hits hard for Mo Moore. She works at the library, and she's also trans. She says that growing up... I never saw a black trans woman in a book. I never saw a black trans woman on TV. If we were, like we were seen as the butt of a joke or we would seen as murder victims. For more, making queer books accessible is about saving lives. Trans kids have one of the highest rates of suicide. 
it is not a joke. These representations are not just about books. It's about helping kids, making sure that they're healthy and happy. So Mississippi and Louisiana have seen a steady flow of challenges in recent years, but it spiked in Alabama this year. Yeah, and Alabama librarians have a lot more control. They aren't really required to do anything if there are complaints. Some lawmakers want to change that, which could open the door to more books being challenged. In a radio interview earlier this week, Alabama's Republican Party chairman John Wall said he wants to try to hold libraries legally liable for content they're carrying. Yeah, they're abusing their status here and putting explicit sexual material in front of children in children's sections. That's the problem. For context, Wall also sits on the state's Public Library Service Board. So, Maya, I guess it's safe to say that efforts to ban books in the Gulf South aren't going away anytime soon. Yeah, and librarians and educators are standing by to make sure young people continue to have access. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Maya Miller. And I'm Drew Hawkins. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration among public media stations in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. A settlement reached last week between district attorneys and the Louisiana Pardon Board means only a few death row inmates are eligible for clemency hearings. The Louisiana Board of Pardons and Committee on Parole had planned to consider at least 20 of the 55 requests to commute prisoners' death sentences to life in prison without parole. Now that panel will consider just five of those applications— Advocate reporter James Fent has been reporting the story, and he joins us now for more. James, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Bring us up to speed, would you, on what's happening here. I know back in June, all but one of 57 people on death row were seeking to have their sentences reduced after Governor Edwards said he was against the death penalty. Since then, there's been quite a bit of opposition from the state's attorney general and from others. That's right. It has been a big uh, few months for death penalty news in Louisiana. First, Governor Edwards said back in March for the first time that he opposed capital punishment. And um, a few weeks after that, told the legislature to pass a bill that would have abolished the death penalty in Louisiana. Then there were a few months where, you know, the legislature was in session and was sort of focused on other things. But as soon as the legislature ended its regular session, a number of Uh, lawyers for death row prisoners filed uh, dozens of clemency requests on behalf of their clients and altogether it comprised what was really a historic effort to obtain clemency for folks on death row. Now the important thing about those requests is it didn't ask Governor Edwards and the state's pardon board to free any of those prisoners. They simply asked their sentences to be reduced to life in prison without the potential for parole. And yes, Karen, as you mentioned, that was a request that was quickly um, disputed and uh, protested by district attorneys all over Louisiana, as well as Attorney General Jeff Landry. I know one of the issues is the same issue that had the board initially ruled that none of the applicants were eligible for the hearings. That was based on a, an opinion by Attorney General Jeff Landry that said the inmates had missed a key cutoff date. They needed to file their clemency petitions within a year of a judge ruling on an appeal in their case. Uh, What are the main arguments for and against allowing these hearings despite the missed deadline? You know, prosecutors and Attorney General Landry argued that, you know, these this deadline is sort of a key part of the pardon board's rules and regulations that have to be followed. And they have pointed to, um, you know, precedent for the amount of time it took for other cases to move through the process. 
Um, and, you know, they also say that rushing the cases would be a bit of a slap in the face to victims, surviving family members. Um, Governor John Bell Edwards, in his letter, in a, in a letter that later requested the board to schedule those hearings, despite the opinion, it was a, a long and very detailed letter in which the governor wrote about kind of the ethical need to stop executions and kind of the urgency here when it comes to um, showing mercy to these folks on death row. And also another argument the folks have made, particularly attorneys for the death row prisoners, is that these rules and regulations that the board has to follow are rules that they have the authority under the law to make themselves. The lawsuit in court last week was to halt planned hearings for at least 20 of the death row inmates. How did that turn into a settlement deal and, and what was the deal? That lawsuit began with many of the arguments we've talked about um, just in kind of legal form. The attorneys, or rather the district attorneys and uh, Attorney General Landry argued that a number of procedures had been violated by the board and that the way those procedures were violated was hurting victims' family members. At the same time, there was a bit of a dispute going on behind the scenes over some legal representation. Um, the pardon board had hired its own attorney to represent itself through this lawsuit. And at a certain point, Attorney General Landry sent this attorney, Art Smith of Baton Rouge, a letter telling him that he could not serve as the board's attorney because he had a alleged conflict of interest and also um, had not obtained proper contract approval as required under the law. Uh, Mr. Smith, it should be noted, disputes that, that he had a conflict of interest. But ultimately what happened was the pardon board ended up retaining a law firm called Share Garner, which is a firm that has been active in other sort of high profile political cases, representing both Governor John Bell Edwards and Attorney General Landry's office at different points. And when that happened, uh, attorneys for the death row prisoners say that they felt that the case kind of flipped and suddenly the attorneys for the board were much more amenable to the terms of the district attorneys and Attorney General Landry. That led to this kind of behind closed doors settlement deal, which limited the board to only hearing a handful of cases rather than the 20 that they had scheduled. We're speaking with advocate reporter James Finn about a settlement reached last week between district attorneys and the Louisiana Pardon Board, which means only a handful of Louisiana death row inmates are eligible for clemency hearings. Now, James, there was a fiery exchange in court between uh, Judge Don Johnson and East Baton Rouge District Attorney Hiller Moore. What happened there? District Attorney Moore apologized to reporters after that exchange outside of the courthouse. And, you know, he said that that was an instance of his emotions getting the better of him. He has been um, sort of a, a staunch and fiery supporter of victims surviving family members throughout this process. He has made a lot of public comments about how this has been hurtful to them. And he attributed that to, um, you know, the emotions that he has seen from them throughout this process. Well, let's talk about the, the settlement deal and what it means for the other death row inmates, as you say, that that five will, it's not a, a definite hearing. It's its basically a review of whether or not they'll get in hearing. So what does this mean for not only them, but, but for the ones that, that follow? So for those five, it is, like we've said, not at all a certainty that they will even get a clemency hearing. And that, those, that clemency hearing, once again, is just one step in this process. Um, at the clemency hearing, the 
Louisiana Pardon Board decides whether to recommend the person in question for clemency, um, in this case, to reduce their sentences to life in prison without parole. And then they send that recommendation on to Governor Edwards. And then it becomes Governor Edwards' decision whether to recommend them for parole. So once again, there are a lot of steps in this process. And for those five, you know, just that one step of getting a clemency hearing isn't even guaranteed. Now, the odds appear even tougher for the other folks um, who have requested clemency in this process and have not had hearings scheduled or have had them scheduled and then under that settlement will no longer have them. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, the attorneys for the death row prisoners are giving up. They have filed additional court filings on that lawsuit asking for a judge to reconsider certain aspects of the argument. They have also said that they are going to appeal to Governor Edwards to use that executive power we talked about and um, work on this process and, you know, change the outcome in their client's favor in any way that he can. And there's not a lot of time if they are counting on, on Edwards for this to happen. He leaves office in early January and the front runner to succeed him is Republican Attorney General Jeff Landry. Uh, what are you hearing from Governor Edwards' office uh, following the settlement and any word from Landry of, of what his idea concerning death penalty, I guess we have a pretty good idea just from his actions now, but is he saying anything about where he will stand on this? You know, should he become governor? That's a great question. You know, we haven't had an execution in Louisiana for 13 years. 2010 was the last time we executed a death row prisoner, and that was a voluntary execution. Um, and this is a really critical moment for uh, capital punishment in the state. When you look at the way that Governor Edwards has come out and decried the death penalty, even before he did that this year, he was um, sort of quietly opposed to obtaining lethal injection drugs um, that would have you know, led to executions taking place. And what we've had as a result is all these people on death row, but no actual executions being scheduled or held. Now, Jeff Landry um, is a vocal supporter of capital punishment and, you know, has not given a ton of clues on the campaign trail about that, what that would look like were, were he to become governor. But, you know, we can certainly count on there being a pretty dramatic shift in the attitudes of the governor um, if he were to take office. James Finn, reporter for The Advocate. James, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. In September, it was announced that Women's Hospital in Baton Rouge will open Louisiana's first inpatient maternal mental health unit. The unit will serve pregnant and postpartum patients in an effort to increase maternal health care in a state that sees consistently higher than average maternal complications and mortality. Here to tell us more about this new facility is Cherie Johnson, Executive Vice President and Chief Nursing Officer. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. We're also joined by Renee Ragus, President and CEO of Women's Hospital. Thank you, Renee, for coming on. It's our pleasure to be here and good morning. 
Cherie, let's start with you. What are some of the, the facts and figures when it comes to the maternal health crisis in Louisiana? Why do we see higher numbers of maternal complications and deaths than, than other states here in Louisiana? Well, just as you said, Karen, you know, we do have higher uh, than the U.S. average on maternal mortality and morbidity, and a lot of things lead to that. And one of those things is really access to care. And what we already know in our statewide data is that we do have a number of deaths that are attributed to hypertension, diabetes, but there's also a a lot of issues with mental health in pregnancy and postpartum period. And what we really want to do is be able to improve the access for women uh, in terms of, of treating postpartum depression, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, um, and being able to provide specific care to these women at, at, you know, during this time to improve some of our outcomes. So, Cherie, I guess maybe that's the answer to this question, but I wanted to see what, why, why you decided to be the one to spearhead a maternal mental health clinic and, and what is the role of mental health when it comes to addressing maternal health overall? Well, maternal mental health, like pregnancy, uh, in pregnancy, specifically uh, depression and anxiety disorders occur um, in women, one out of five women. And 75% of the time, these women don't seek help. And, And those of us who have had babies I mean, we know how difficult it is after we have a baby just to get dressed in the morning, let alone if you have additional issues. Um, so uh, we are the the largest delivery provider in the state, uh, as Renee will share with you later. And it's our mission to improve the health of women and infants. Um, so this is something that we really felt led to do. Renee, let's go to you. As president and CEO, how do you, you see this new unit fitting into the larger mission of Women's Hospital? Well, Karen, it, it actually fits quite nicely with our mission um, here at the hospital to improve the health of women and infants. And as Cherie alluded to, as the largest provider of maternity care in the state, it's our responsibility to address all the different aspects of perinatal health with this being um, really important because mental health conditions are that leading cause of maternal mortality and morbidity in the United States, but more importantly, in our own communities here in Louisiana and in our state. And and Renee, what's the timetable here? What, What needs to happen to get this clinic off and running? So we're just starting our journey. Um, And we are planning to open in the fall of 2024. Um, We've got a lot to do, um, but we've got a a pretty structured process and a number of different work groups um, established and everything from construction and design, business operations, finance, clinical, staffing, legal, regulatory. It really is a very comprehensive uh, team and, and program in order to get uh, a, a unit of this uh, complexity and importance open. All righty. And, and a timeline again, what, what are you looking at as far as dates? We're looking at the fall of 2024, hopefully by uh, the October timeframe is where we're, 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 we're setting our goal for. 
We're speaking with Cherie Johnson, Executive Vice President and Chief Nursing Officer at Women's Hospital, and Renee Raggis, Hospital President and CEO. We're discussing their new maternal mental health clinic. As was mentioned, this will be the first inpatient perinatal mental health service in Louisiana. Cherie, are you operating without a blueprint, or are you looking at examples in other states that have similar units? Well, we we definitely have a big plan for this. We've been uh, considering this for quite some time now, and we are leaning in to those throughout the country who specialize in this space. There's very few uh, centers across the country, but of course, uh, you know, we've got local experts, some national experts that we've reached out to. So uh, we really want to build something very uh, unique and special uh, to really service the unique needs for pregnant women and postpartum women who are experiencing severe depression that require, um, you know, inpatient treatment. The, the only thing to add uh, to, to Cherie's description is we want to make sure that we put the woman's touch on the program while we model best practice from the, the, the few centers around the country. Um, we want to make sure that it really has our touch and what and, and, and our um, mission, vision and values associated with it. That's going to make it a really special place. We all know there's a big stigma around mental health, including postpartum depression. How will this unit work to address and hopefully defy that stigma? Well, we know that um, resources and access for these women are, are very limited. And so with us opening this up, of course, it approves access. But of course, the other thing we want to to demonstrate with this is, you know, being a mother is really hard and we have uh, additional pressures on us. Um, and the unique needs of, of pregnant and postpartum women uh, really should be met in such a way to support them. Um, this unit, will, we will be able to provide newborn visitation. We're going to be able to provide lactation support. Um, you, you won't be mixed in with a population um, um, in terms of treatment therapies that uh, you might be with, you know, men that who have different needs. You're gonna have uh, women who are there with the same unique needs that you will, you have. You, you've given a good picture of the immediate goals for this, this unit, this um, mental health service. What are the long-term goals looking 10 years down the line? What do you envision? So it, it actually aligns really well <clears throat> with our strategic plan at the hospital, which supports our mission, vision and values to continue to be that provider of choice for women and infants as being, again, the largest provider of maternity care um, in the state. It's our responsibility to be a leader in this space in the short term and in the long term. In 10 years from now, I expect that the, this we will have positively affected maternal morbidity and mortality rates in our state, which is a focus for our elected leadership for community leaders and for all of the, the families in our communities that, that this is really important and that this is affecting. Sherry Johnson, Executive Vice President and Chief Nursing Officer at Women's Hospital and Renee Raggett, Hospital President and CEO. 
Thank you both for joining us today on Louisiana Considered. Thank you, Karen. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guest, reporter for the Times-Picayune, the advocate, James Finn, president and CEO of Women's Hospital in Baton Rouge, Renee Ragas, and hospital executive vice president and chief nursing officer, Cherie Johnson. Our managing producer is Alana Shriver, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Greater New Orleans Foundation.